listener, and welcome to another episode of AOC. If you're listening to this on the day of, happy Halloween! In today's episode, we're discussing Emily Carroll's A Guest in the House. It's the third and final horror comic for a spooky month, so here's a couple of trigger warnings up front, as this episode contains general horror, struggles with identity, sexual topics of an uncomfortable nature, and murder. And here's the mood board for the comic. If you're lucky enough to live close to water, be the lake or the ocean, read this comic next to it. And if not, put on some nature ASMR of waves and ponds, wear a comfortable jumper, and huddle up in the dark. With a reading light, of course. Let's go visit! Stone. I have a slight cold this week, so if I sound even more like a Karen than normally, that's why. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, and today I have no intro. I am pure blank, a complete empty head. Abby has never felt right in her own skin, but now she's found herself a slice of normality with a house, a husband, and a child. Only, none of it is hers. Not truly. It all belongs to Sheila, the deceased former wife of Abby's new husband. When you marry into a family with a past, that past could come back to haunt you. And Emily Carroll's domestic horror will leave you wondering, who is the guest in the house, really? Life should be on easy street now, right? A husband, a daughter, a house and a job. I'm doing this correctly, am I not? Am I not? Why then, won't the ghost of her leave me be? Instead she invokes my desires and turns me to sin. And I love it, and I hate it, and I love it, and I hate it, and I love it, and I... Right off the bat, this hit really close and personal. This was a tough read for me. Do you want to start by elaborating in that case? Because I'm really curious. Sure, sure. I have no issue sharing this. You know, and a lot of my close friends know, that I performed straightness for years. Mm. And when I wrote my blurb, it was that... I'm doing it right, am I not? Like, this this is life, this should be life. I should want a man and a house and a dog and so on and so on. But it never made me happy and it never made me feel peaceful. And then, of course, you have to come to terms with all of society's demands towards you and your gender. This book really, when it goes there, it really, really goes there, depicting how trapped you can feel within those boundaries. And I think that is also why I struggle coming to terms with some of the execution within this book. And I will say right away, I fucking love this book. Full spoiler, I adore it. But there were a couple of concepts that had me going, huh, how am I supposed to read this? And what is the takeaway here? Yeah, I had a similar experience. Really loved it. Very gripping read. But I did have a lot of open questions about the book and... I really like fiction like that. So in that respect, it was sort of playing to my desires when it comes especially to horror. But actually, I have a big question about the book in general. Do you read Abby as suppressing being gay? Oh, absolutely. To me, that is 100% the underlying tone. We even have the full reveal of a kiss towards the end of the book that is both so beautiful and so horrifying. I think where it had me questioning, yeah, sure, I definitely read this as someone who is trapped in a way and can't get out because they are desperately trying to perform our society's approach to normality. But then what am I supposed to take away from this that (laughs) if you're gay, you're gonna end up killing some people? 
<laughs> or like, <laughs> being gay is an option so killing your way out of straightness is <laughs> i know what you mean i also wondered whether the quote-unquote murders towards the end even happened there are ways to interpret what was going on that are purely allegorical or all in abby's head here's the thing right the overlying theme is as you so excellently put in your blurb abby is just trying to live a culturally accepted life. The through line is she views her life as some sort of fairy tale where she is a knight. She is trying to save this maiden in a tower from a dragon. Sheila, the ex-wife of her now husband, David, is this maiden in her mind. And then towards the end of the book, the knight pierces the real Sheila, question mark, and I was wondering, so there's a point in this book where Abby is talking to Crystal, her stepdaughter, and they're talking about a fairy tale book where her overarching fairy tale stems from with the knight and the dragon and the maiden. And she's like, oh yeah, I always found it so sad at the end when the knight dies to the dragon. And Crystal is like, that doesn't happen. It's not in the book. And it doesn't happen. She opens the book and she sees that, oh, the, the knight is fully alive. And she's like, I could have sworn... In my book, the knight dies. And in hindsight, this is just one of many warnings that Abby is an unreliable narrator. But it, when I did my notes today, I was like, is that foreshadowing? Because is Sheila not the maiden, but the dragon? This comes to like the last part of the blurb that I wrote, which I thought was the central theme of the book, which is who really is the guest in the house. And one of the things I loved about this book was that it played with all of these horror tropes that we're familiar with, hauntings, murders, etc. But the thing that you were never quite sure about was whether the horrific thing was really Abby. And that plays really nicely with how she sees her true self as this horrifying, shambling thing that she literally has to dress up in armour, the armour being a normal life that she's surrounding herself in. At the slightest provocation, bits of her will start to spill out of that armor and everything slowly falls apart over the course of the book. But it's almost like all the horror comes from her rather than from an external source. It's never clear exactly which of these things are true or false because you're never provided with a definitive answer because you only ever see through Abby's eyes. Yeah, her being obviously the one and only narrator in this because she even narrates the story herself with an inner voice makes the whole unreliable narrator aspect that much tougher. And I think this was my biggest takeaway in terms of... I don't know if I want to call it criticism, but it was a thing that I really latched onto, which is she is our sole storyteller. And therefore, thanks to how the story is structured, we sympathize with her. We also are kind of led to believe her since we see her perspective of things and never really that much else. And then at the end, it feels like that is all kind of pulled out from beneath our feet. And while I don't necessarily straight up dislike that, it leaves me feeling a little cold. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I wonder if it's partially a pacing issue. We talked about this a little bit last episode when we were discussing the man who came down the attic stairs, which we both felt was a little rushed at the end. I think if I had one major technical criticism of this, it would be the same. It's got quite careful pacing all the way through up until roughly the last 20 to 30 pages. And then suddenly all the revelations, all of the ending, quote unquote, happens in a rush. 
What appears to happen is that Abby kills her husband and is helped by the ghost of Sheila. After that, I feel like the pacing of the book just suddenly took a turn and it went end. Because that was a really shocking moment and a big enough reveal by itself. But then we're treated to the next reveal, which is that a character who we've always thought is one of her neighbours, this neighbour is actually Sheila. And Sheila looks, in reality, if this is to be believed, looks nothing like this dream image, this beautiful princess image that Abby has of Sheila. We're still left with a question, but is this new Sheila a ghost? Because everybody up to this point has said that she's died in one way or another. Or is this new Sheila real and everyone was lying about her death? There just wasn't enough time to ask any of these questions before the narrative ended, and it ended in a really ambiguous way. I absolutely agree. I made a similar very short note that just said, as always with horror, the ending feels rushed. Is this just a curse? Is all horror cursed to either never end or end itself abruptly? I'm trying to think of a horror I've read that really nailed the the ending. So here's the thing. I had a revelation earlier today, and I'm curious to see if you agree or not. This month, I watched a lot of horror movies since it's October. And last night, I rewatched Get Out by Jordan Peele, which is an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. I have not seen it, but uh, go ahead. I will not spoil anything story-specific. I will just say that by the time the end comes around, you could argue it also still goes through that same pacing of it builds up to a climax, the climax erupts, and then it's the end. And here is where I wonder if simply movies are more forgiving in terms of their format in tackling horror than both books and comics are. In a movie, you can have lingering shots. You can allow the viewer to catch their breath and to just look at, for example, the dead bodies or the surviving characters or nature shots or what have you. There's so many ways to give the audience a break to let the feeling settle in but not end the movie while in a comic you are kind of constantly pushed forward and because of the economy of comics and not only in terms of page structure but the actual money issue of comics you kind of have to be more efficient and in a book it would be really fucking boring to just read description upon description upon description instead of moving the plot forward. And I'm just really mm. curious if it is a format thing when it comes to horror. And another example is Blair Witch, which has a very famous ending, but I think a really effective one and a very sudden ending as well. Here's a thought to add on top of that. Let's say you as the writer have paced your book perfectly because you still can do certain things to make readers linger on shots in comics. And I think this book does a very good job of that a lot of the time. A perfect example is that spread in this comic where she's killing her husband and she's kissed by the ghost. I've marked that out as just a stunning grab me and stare at me page. However, if you're writing a comic that is this creepy or this tense, what you're doing is you're building a fever pitch in your reader and your reader is the one who decides the pace of your book. Ultimately, they could skip over the most beautifully drawn arresting panel if you work them up enough. So if horror gets you tense, works you up, and then ends in any way that's not super stretched out, you're going to like devour that ending faster than you naturally would under a different reading circumstance, like if you'd been nicely relaxed. So it's like, 
wind up, wind up, wind up, wind up, wind up. And then even if the ending is normally paced or paced like the rest of the book, you still read it faster than you should do. I wonder if that's the case. No, I think you're 100% correct because I had a similar experience. I read a manga yesterday called She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat, Volume 3. And again, without spoiling anything, there was a specific segment there that was very stressful where I could feel my heart racing faster. And I started stress reading because I was like, I just want this to be over. Perhaps it's just that a lot of people haven't thought of it. And when they pace out their endings, they pace them out using the same sense of how they're controlling the reader as they do in every other part of the book. And actually what you need to do is know that your reader is desperately trying to skip ahead and deliberately compensate by slowing even further down, even when you're writing something that should be a tumultuous ending to a stressful story. It's it's almost like you've got to resist the temptation to do the natural thing storytelling-wise, or the thing that you might do in a film. I think, if anything, it proves that the comic storytelling format is just its complete own thing. You can't necessarily follow the structures that books and movies and video games do, because a comic is all and none of those things simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great segue to one of the other things that I wanted to talk about in this comic as well, which is how much it plays with format. At times, it's like a picture book. At times, it's like... I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Posey Simmons, who mixes prose and comic panels. And at times, it's more like a traditional graphic novel style comic. That could have been jarring in any other situation, but it was very carefully divided between moments of narration, moments of self-reflection, and moments of quote-unquote straight narrative, where we're just seeing events play out. You saying this made me think that our podcast is called The Art of Comics, and this comic book is art. I think this, it's fair to say that in some ways this book transcends the medium a little bit because it's not beholden to it. It doesn't feel like it always has to use the same visual language. But when it breaks visual language, when it moves away from panels and bubbles, it still maintains its own internal consistency, which I think is what makes it work. There are moments when maybe the flow of one of the storybook pages could be a little better or a little less ambiguous, and that that ambiguity isn't serving the story. But apart from those occasional moments, it's so deftly handled all the way through. Oh, I'm curious now what you find to not be successful in that regard. I also wanted to add before you answer that. On top of that, I will say... I never found this pretentious or snobby, which I think is a feat when it's executed this way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it could have very easily come across as almost disrespectful of the medium that it's breaking from. Because I think that often when people are compelled to do that kind of thing, it can come from a place of disdain for the original language that they're breaking away from. And I never felt that at any point in this. Every part was equally embraced and and had its place. But I am curious though, do you have like any specific pinpointers of where you feel the execution fell short for you? The very first page, I used to dream of dragons, and then we turn and we have this beautiful spread of a dragon. But from a pure like children's literature point of view, I thought the reading order on this page was ambiguous and not in a way that served the art or the story. The words don't flow together in any order well enough to support any reading order either. It was actually a little bit of a shaky start for the book in that respect. I was like, oh, I love what is being done here, but I think this could have done with a little bit of extra rearranging. And then when we turn into part one, Abby, and we move into the sort of mode, which is more like Posey Simmons, where she's 
talking about her own life in a kind of a narrator style way to the reader and I felt the density of text here wasn't well enough supported by the density of images to give me a good sense of place at the beginning of the story and I was worried that the whole book would end up overly verbose and too reliant on experimental storytelling techniques as far as comics go but I've got to say after that it fully settled into itself and I didn't really notice any serious problems apart from the very occasional oops I read that in the wrong order moment. I don't recognize this criticism personally I mean I see where you're coming from absolutely but the moment I settled in for this, I was one hundo in the headspace to be taken along for whatever this was. So when it started with that fairy tale element, I was like, oh, okay, so so it's this kind. And then it jumped into more modern times with the actual character. I was like, oh, okay, so it's not a fairy tale, it's this thing. And then it fully settles, like you said, into its proper structure. And I went, okay, I'm along, that's fine. I think my biggest crime, and it's all on me, not on the comic is that as I was reading, I started assuming and I started building an ending in my own head, which I have a very bad habit of doing. And I thought I had kind of sort of pinned where this would go. And when it didn't, my immediate reaction was to retaliate and be like, no, no, I do not accept this story. I do not accept this ending. And then I had to go, hold on, hang on. It's not up to me. I'm not the author. I got on this roller coaster and I strapped in and I paid the ticket and I agreed that wherever it takes me, it takes me and it's not up for me to decide. So I'm really interested to know about this because I think that this story makes you do that or makes more careful readers do that deliberately. So full upfront closure. I do not think what I was expecting was better. It was 100% worse and much more traditional, which I also think is just a testament to how typical this kind of storytelling is. I expected for Sheila to actually be dead and for the ghost to remain ambiguous, but that either my biggest hope was that her and David would actually act like fucking adults and just talk it out and she would be like hey i'm gay and this isn't working for me and i gotta go <laughs> and have like a nice turnaround and i was like no this is horror it's not gonna have that but that's what i want and then i i started getting really scared because there is one page on 128 where she has imaginary scenarios about how her husband will react to her asking about Sheila. She envisions three different scenarios where he starts sympathetic, goes a little defensive, and goes fully gaslight. And then I went, oh boy, oh, this is so uncomfortable. It was the most uncomfortable I felt in the entire comic was those three imagined scenarios of her husband's reaction. And that's when I started to go, oh, is he gonna kill her too? Because that's kind of what, at this point, we've been made to believe that David killed his former wife. And he has explosive tendencies and he has anger issues and he has a violent past. So I'm just sitting here, Abby, get the fuck out, pack your bags and go, man's gonna kill you. So that sort of supports what I think, which is that the book encourages you to think that David killed his wife. That that's the typical and expected narrative that it teases and makes you expect deliberately. I was definitely 100% there. I thought that it was either going to be that ending or it was going to undermine that ending in an obvious way. But the actual twist was like, no, none of that. Or maybe that. We still don't know for 100%. Maybe he still did kill his wife at the end. Very hard to say because all of the interpretations are left open as possible, I think, by the actual ending. Or my interpretation, at least, was that the book was deliberately teasing that particular ending. 
and I spent most of it thinking, oh, that's coming, it's coming. I know he's the one who did it. And it's sort of, there is a particular page where the ghost of Sheila confirms it 100% or feels like she confirms it 100%. 184, that's right, in the attic when she takes on her most horrific aspect and effectively just explains the plot to Abby. Several things hit me while reading this in terms of themes like female jealousy, queer phobia, poor self-image, etc. The more I think about it, the more I feel like this is almost like reading a comic version of something by Lynch, where I almost feel a little stupid at the end. Should I be able to grasp this more easily, or am I overthinking it? How are we supposed to read Sheila? Is she her made-up ghost? Or is she an inner demon? Since she's taking these two very different forms, she's either a lustrous woman or she's a ghoul. And is that what Abby herself view women as? Does she want them to be incredibly beautiful and perfect? Or does she see them as an enemy? I think yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. I actually, (laughs) my first blurb was that I just wanted to write a bunch of questions and then just go, yes, at the end. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because that's kind of what I felt like when I was done with this is, man, I'm so dumb. I would much rather conclude with my lack of intelligence than blame the author for poor execution when I think the book is this good. I mean, I think that one of the things about this book is that it's exceptional at doing is planting those questions in your head as you're reading about femininity, about this woman's relationship to herself. The fact that the quote-unquote real Sheila is relatively unremarkable looking like don't really pay all that much attention to the character who's actually introduced very early as the neighbor because she's pretty similar to abby to be honest and maybe that's the point all of these things that abby has been desiring for herself all of the things that she projects onto sheila all the way through the ghoulishness and the beauty when really sheila was just a bit like her perhaps or just as unremarkable in in, in the ways that abby accuses herself of being unremarkable I never expected this to go so hand-in-hand with the previous episode's book by Celine Loop, the man who came down the attic stairs. These are actually phenomenal sister pieces about unhappy marriage and unreliable narrators. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could almost call this book the woman who came down from the attic stairs (laughs) because it ends with that tumultuous moment in the attic. Yeah, they really are good companion pieces, aren't they? Yeah, if these two were movies, they would be double billings. But it did prompt a question, actually, because we talked a little bit last episode about whether we thought that The Man Who Came Down the Attic Stairs was just out of print because it was really popular and difficult to get hold of, or if it didn't sell very well and didn't have the right kind of support from the publisher. And we actually discovered the answer to that question Celine Loop confirmed that it hadn't really got the support it had needed from the publisher and that eventually she had bought up all of the remaining copies so she could sell them from her store. But in contrast, I'm thinking of the absolute extreme and sudden success of Emily Carroll, the obvious amount of money and time that the publisher has put into this book and hopefully will put into the marketing and so on as well. And what the difference is there and and why one got one treatment but not the other. If I'm going to be cynical, I think it's much more down to luck, which sadly is a huge factor in this industry that we talked about many times. Emily Carroll was at the right place at the right time, and Celine Loop wasn't. And that sucks, and it shouldn't be that way, because they're equally fucking great in very different ways. 
I just don't think there's anything more to it than that, that Emily Carroll got lucky and is, of course, also talented, but she got lucky and kept coasting on the luck and skill and kept producing really fucking good stuff. And Celine Loop just took a different path because different options was on the table for her. Yeah, and that is the reality of the industry, isn't it? And, and probably of all creative industries as well. Luck is such a huge component. And a lot of people just don't want to hear that as well. It's, it's a difficult pill to swallow. <laughs> if you're unable to swallow that pill, I think... No, you know what? I'm actually going to be really fucking bold and say, I know that you're going to have a real fucking shit time in this industry because you're going to get eaten up by envy and bitterness and you're going to spend far more time pondering why isn't that me instead of keeping your head up and keep going and i don't mean that as a condescending pulling up by the bootstraps bullshit sentimentality it's more that kind of is the truth of the matter you either get up and keep going or you give up yeah it's a harsh reality i think i agree in in total it doesn't matter whether you've got a good reason for railing against that fact it's still a fact that's its own horror story right there yeah, i was just about to say if you want the real horror stories the comic book industry look no further <laughs> every single person in it were the people who are murdered yeah if you read any comic book you've read a product of horror this story is set in the 90s and i had a question regarding that beside the obvious nostalgia that all of us 80s kids suddenly have towards the 80s and 90s right now and that's very hip which i i never got the sense of that with the story instead i was curious do you think it set itself in the 90s because the emotional problems were much bigger than in terms of for example her sexuality and her husband talking with david the potential of sorting this shit out seems much less likely set in the 90s with a peaceful solution at the end versus now yeah very possibly and that maybe the author wanted to avoid in general the ability to find answers on the internet <laughs> of any kind because abby's loneliness is one of the key parts of her and i feel like if this character was born into the 2000s and they had this period of time in the 2010s or post-internet they'd probably just find their niche online you say this but as i open this entire episode with i resonated a lot with the story and i grew up with access to the internet to figure my shit out and it wasn't obvious and it wasn't instant and it was messy and it was ugly and it was very hard so even when you have those tools, it's not a given that you're going to utilize them. That's a good point. Yeah. I guess it at least avoids the question of why didn't she? Nonetheless, I'd, I'd guess that's the reason for setting it in the 90s. Little bits like, for example, when one of the neighbors comes around quietly negging her about the fact that she doesn't have a water filter. Now you'd just be like, oh, everyone's got a water filter. You just, you know, if you can afford it, you just go on Amazon and get one. You've got one the next day. But she had to get a bunch of catalogs down off the top of the fridge and carefully look through until she found a water filter to order. The things that you want being very distant from you and the sense of desperation that you don't have them and the barrier between you and getting them being larger then than it is now, I think was also important to the story. When she first shows up, she's this incredible fucking Karen. Tells her how to run her life within five minutes, basically. This is how you should hang your art pieces. You need filtered water, blah, blah, blah. And then she shows up towards the end and turns out to be actual Sheila. And yeah, I don't know. I can tell that I still... I think I feel very betrayed by the fact that we have seen Sheila as this very different looking woman. 
And then instead, she is this very uncharming lady from the beginning of the story. And isn't it bizarre that I'd rather Sheila be this fucking ghoul ghost than a Karen? That's what's genius about this story, though, I think. Like, that this Sheila at the beginning, nobody has described her. Everybody's talked about Sheila, but nobody talked about this Sheila. And I'm interested if you thought that there's an extra dimension here, because there's someone from Abby's past who died. Her sister. Her sister, yeah. And there's a moment when you see a photograph of Sheila. That photograph we see through Abby's eyes, I guess, but it looks exactly like Abby's sister. So I will first say, I don't think they look that similar from what I could tell from the flashback of the sister of Abby. She's a brunette. They're both just conventionally pretty ladies. In the photo of Sheila as much younger, she has blonde hair and the ghost version of supposed Sheila also has very light hair. All of her is basically just white. And yeah, I hadn't put those two together before you mention it now. And that makes her kissing the ghost very... Is she like making out with her sister? That's... mm, ah, mm, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah, there's a slightly uncomfortable dimension there, isn't there? Yeah, because that kind of brings in that whole other side. You could already argue that there's... Man, I'm very torn about this. God, I'm struggling sorting myself because I want to say like five things at once. (laughs) I know what you mean. I both want to be like accuser and defender of this comic (laughs) simultaneously. Okay, first saying that that might be a reflection of her sister makes the whole kissing thing problematic. And it also then brings a whole other ballpark of harmful tropes on gay people, which this comic already kind of adds in. And then I immediately want to turn around and go full defender and go, we need problematic queer stories because queer people aren't perfect either. And that shouldn't be the point of queer stories. And especially in this fucking climate that we have today with banned books and all that bullshit. Thank you for coming to my TED talk and my soapbox. (laughs) so i immediately want to just go no 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 even if it was her fucking sister just fucking smooch and it's not because it's my thing or anything it's just i want it to be difficult and i want it to be hard and i want it to be nasty but yeah if i sit down and i'm a little more rational and level-headed about it if you disagree and if you read it like you said one hundo fine and if anyone listening goes like you fucking dimwit they're so similar couldn't you see it that's also fine I think they're two separate or potentially three separate entities. And I never thought that it was supposed to resemble her sister, but that she's much more open to all of these possibilities because of losing her sister. And she has this difficult relationship with grief and let it go. I think there's a th- there's a third option here that often horror leads into the problematic like this as well. If it is a deliberate comparison and there is that, element of sexual awakening that had to do with her sister that this is the right genre for it (laughs) so i think maybe the important comparison here is not that they're the same character but they both have the same aspects of like enviable feminine beauty that abby is obsessed with and we're not seeing a literal comparison between the two but this idea of what a woman should be in abby's eyes and what she isn't able to be, is tangled up with both her impression of what Sheila should be like and her memory of her sister. Yeah, a question I really wanted to ask you that, again, maybe feeds into this stuff, maybe doesn't, left an open question. There was one really standout moment for me, and it was just a small, tiny piece of dialogue, because it felt so significant. 
The husband, he's always just on the edge of being horrible to everyone and he's trying to hold it together and that he can only really hold it together because Abby is so passive. And there's one moment on page 26 when he accidentally calls Crystal, his own daughter, Abby, his new wife, and then Abby corrects him. And he's like, oh yes, of course, I'm sorry. And that's never addressed again? The immediate thought I had is that he infantilized her since there is a huge age gap between them. Oh, yes, of course. So I read it as David infantilizing Abby and not seeing her as a fellow authority, but someone below him, just like his daughter. Right, yeah, that makes sense. I really, really liked the way that the dialogue played out a lot of the times when he would interrupt Abby to talk to Crystal. The lettering is so beautifully done when it comes to interruptions, changes in tone, changes in interpretation. There's a particular page. Let me see if I can find it. It's 32. In the previous page, Abby has been trying to get her husband to let her talk to Crystal or to let Crystal go to therapy. As we turn the page, he responds, no, but the no is set in a black bubble with white text. And then she tries to object and there's a much, much bigger, very black no with white text and that was a beautiful change of tone yeah absolutely and actually the more we talk about it and i i hope this would happen since i went in a little bit confused but also very much enamored by this comic i think i feel content now in my reading of the comic which is that abby is the one in the wrong I do think Abby is delusional to some degree, and I think David is just a bad husband since his reasoning for kind of creating this wedge between Crystal and Abby is because he's terrified that Crystal is gonna actually spill the beans and be like, no, my mom is alive. Because I'm convinced that David and Crystal both know that Sheila is alive. Crystal is forced to lie about it, and that's why she feels fucking awful. And I wonder if she's been told to tell one lie, including water, since she's obsessed with water. And then David has told his friends and everyone that she died of cancer. But then there was also a house fire. You know, when you lie and you're not consistent in your lie, it easily becomes a problem because it comes undone just like that. And he's just like not a good liar. And instead, he tries to control and assess the situation with toxic masculinity and that worked in the 90s sadly and to a degree it sadly still works today still does now yeah and in the end sheila comes back to claim her daughter because she she just took off is what we're led to believe she couldn't deal with that life it probably couldn't deal with david because we get the feeling that they fought a lot and then she regrets her choice she comes back she want to pick up crystal and get the fuck out of dodge and by this time abby has already killed david and she's like fuck, my lie is coming undone because now I can't lie about what the fuck David is doing because she knows and now she's an issue. And I think that kind of makes me sad in the end that the queer protagonist who could have sorted this by just talking to someone kills all her options and just fucks it up. It's definitely an interpretation. I still don't know if that's the one that feels right to me or not, but I can't deny that it's it's definitely a, a very valid one. And you've made me realize something actually is is that I was interpreting this reaction from the dad making up all of these things because clearly all these stories contradict each other or are too convenient. You can read this two ways. Either he killed his wife and sadly a very, very common reason for men killing their wife is because they feel emasculated for some reason. Or that same sense of emasculation 
was what led him to lie about her leaving him because he couldn't accept that it would be that simple and she would just want to go. So he had to come up with this story to tell everybody to save his own sense of masculinity and pride. They're both crap and more sympathetic because he doesn't kill anyone. <laughs> but it's the, still the same motivation. Either you read this very literal or you read it as a ghost story. And when you read it as a ghost story, you're much more sympathetic and forgiving to Abby, even if in both of the stories she does commit murder, according to the book. And that makes me think of a very ominous line that I wanted to ask you about. It's repeated at least twice. So we first see it um, on page 16, in set in a black panel in white text. It says, me one day, one day me. And I couldn't tell when I read it first whether it was envy and longing or a sense of dread and doom, or maybe both at the same time. I think it's very hard to read this without self-projecting. My literal fucking nightmare would be to live in a place like this where these kind of Karens showed up and criticized me and my lifestyle and my choices and everything. I would rather live in a fucking hut in the woods and my nearest neighbor being a moose. <laughs> so when I read it, me one day, one day me, it's like, lo and behold, this dread. Right, so it's a literal threat for you. For me, it is. But as the character, I see it as a desperation to just be quote-unquote normal. Okay, so again, both things at the same time, I think, seems like a good answer. Coming back to this now, having read it and sorting out all my thoughts about it, it seems like there's no good ending possible, except for one in which she talks to David. I feel like that moment that you picked out near the beginning of the podcast, where you talked about those three possible but completely fictional conversations that she has with David at one point, it's like the whole book revolves around page 128. That moment is when she decides not to talk to David, because David does not present himself as someone who would ever be understanding to her. All of those three things felt like things that David could say to me. They felt reasonable, given the character he displayed up until that date. And none of them could have prevented the ending, or some other horrible ending. And I guess that sense of being trapped is... it's really well done. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, that was the most scared and uncomfortable I was in the entire book. I feel maybe at the end of the day, Abby's biggest enemy is not only herself, but her assumptions. She assumes the worst, and she's not willing to give an inch to kindness or forgiveness. Yeah, I, I heavily relate to that as someone who has shite self-esteem and a very poor self-image it is very easy to think that if you dare to put your neck on the line people will chop your head off you have managed to lull yourself into this false reality that everybody else sees your full ugliness the same way you do 24 7 while people like me and like abby spend most of that time masking said ugliness to be as likable as fucking possible so when we go around and we say, oh, I I'm this and that in a negative way, most people are like, what the fuck is she talking about? Because most of the time she's laughing and smiling and doing her fucking damnness for us to be pleased. Right, yeah. Well, that's the sort of the horrible catch-22 or the horrible tragedy of masking, I guess, or being forced to feel like you're masked. It reaches this really, really deep question that everybody who deals with this kind of thing has to face is, am I just doing this myself or have I been forced to this by society? And again, the answer is yes. Here, I would argue that the answer is 100% society. Nobody wakes up and chooses to dislike themselves. 
That's like True. nobody wakes up and chooses to be homophobic or racist or whatever. That's something that's instilled on you. And the moment you turn around and say, did you choose that? It's, uh, it's victim blaming. It's very true. Absolutely. And thinking about it, the book does a very, very good job. And this is a note that I've made here. The gentle and consistent negging from everyone around her in her life is really, really nicely done and very consistent throughout. There's no character, not her daughter, not her husband, not Sheila as her neighbour, or any one of her other neighbours, who doesn't just subtly put her down in some way, shape or form. And not once does she stand up for herself, which is heartbreaking. And I think that's why the murder of her husband towards the end feels that much more brutal. Because she's just been pushed to the edge. She's had it. The night that she wanted to be should have been for herself. I guess the story, or if you're going to extract a sort of like a moral from it, one that might frame this slightly more problematic element of a queer character doing something deeply horrible, is that when your desires aren't given a natural and free and open space to be in, because they're perfectly legitimate, that's when they turn problematic and horrible and twist something true and beautiful and wonderful into something horrible for you. <laughs> yeah, man. <sighs> When I closed this book yesterday after reading, first of all, I was quite devastated. There's one scene in this book depicted where Abby and David have sex and she just lays there motionless. Without going into too much detail, been there, done that is not a good time. It's heartbreaking. So that was tough. But then also the entire book is just so fucking good while also being incredibly fucking challenging. So I sat there going, all around me are familiar places. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, this must have been a deep cut for you. <laughs> it, it really was. And I was very curious discussing it with you since we, of course, approach this very differently because of who we are as people. But I was also so eager to hear your views and your opinions and your explanations to maybe clarify some things for me and also for me to just, yeah, air my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I had a sense that you would have had a very personal reaction, but I, I didn't quite know what it was going to be. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> Just so not you or anyone out there is like, oh, wow, okay, what the fuck am I doing with this information? I'm 100% fine. When I was in these situations, it's many, 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 many years ago. I have super worked through it. And today I do not suffer from any of that. Just to make that very, very, very clear. That's why I can also talk so openly about it. And I think... It's why I gladly do, because I do know for a lot of people that's something they do not wish to discuss, and that's perfectly fucking fine. You don't have to, you don't owe it to anyone. But if it can make someone feel seen or a little less traumatized or alone about something, I will gladly stand on the barricade sharing very intimate stories since it's not that difficult to me. Yeah, and hopefully that will be helpful to, to somebody. And then for the rest of the audience, no Jawses were hurt in the recording of this podcast. <laughs> I was only sick with a cold. <laughs> <laughs> We've sort of summed up the book, haven't we? We're reaching a decent conclusion here. How, how do you think? The through-line answer, as always, is yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> as it is. Yes. Very excited for next episode. Man, this is going to be such a mood change. We are leaving horror behind for a little bit, at least, since October is coming to an end. 
And instead, we are tackling Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley. I'm looking forward to new things, less horrifying things. As much yeah. as, as as enjoyable as horror is, it's a horror month has been very full of horrificness. Especially since I watched a bunch of horror movies, I am looking forward to being able to sleep again. Okay, well, in that case, I hope you do sleep, and I'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Only none of us. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Pulling up on a boo. Why then won't the ghost of her leave me? Oh, let me read that again. I think if you're unable to swallow that pillow... Pillow? Hello? If you're unable to swallow a whole fucking pillow... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>